We are talking once again with Maria Tomczyk, local writer and activist, here to give us a wrap-up of this past week's news. Good morning. Good morning. It's no job this week, but uh, fingers crossed we'll be back next week. He's got an appointment this morning, so uh, we'll see him next week. So, starting out with the Seattle Times and a article on housing costs. Yeah, their their data guy, uh, Gene Balk, his nickname is the FYI guy, uh, wrote a story this week entitled Seattle Area Percentage of House Rich Cash Poor Among the Highest in the U.S. Uh, no surprises there, right? He points out that the general measure of affordability is that a family should spend about two and a half times their annual income to purchase a home. Okay. Uh, but according to the new 2021 American Housing Survey, which is done every other year by the U.S. Census Bureau, in the Puget Sound area, people who own homes are paying a median of 4.9 times their annual income to buy a house. That means that half of homeowners have paid less than that and half have paid more. Almost one quarter of the total pay have paid more than nine times their annual income. And 16% have paid 11 or more times their annual income, making them extremely house rich and cash poor. And this was not just the Seattle area, so uh, it's the tri-county area of King, Pearson, Snohomish counties that was that was included in this. So here within Seattle itself is probably where you're going to find a lot of those house-rich, cash-poor people. Now, the median for the entire United States was 3.3 times annual income. The Puget Sound area ranked fifth on the list of 15 major cities that the report focused on, with the top four being San Jose, California, with 7.1 as the median, San Francisco with 7.0, Los Angeles with 6.9, and a tie between Miami and Riverside, California for fourth place, both with 5.1. And of course, we are at 4.9 times your income spent on, on purchasing a home. Now I know here within within Seattle it's probably as I said in the higher range and so when you're talking about people who are paying 9, 10 and 11 times their annual income to be able to afford a place to live well that's probably those folks who are trying to live within the city so one of the interesting things I was thinking about this week after reading that article is that the state legislature is in session now down in Olympia. They convened on Monday, and I took a look to see what bills have already been introduced in the first week of the legislative session, and there are quite a few housing bills already in the works to hopefully try to deal with the housing affordability problem that Washington State is having. And I just wanted to go over about seven or eight of those bills to give you an idea of what the Democrats in the state legislature are wanting to work on this session. So uh, right off the top is Senate Bill 5045, which would provide a lower property tax rate on accessory dwelling units that are rented to low-income households making 60% or less of area median income. So the clearly the, the Senate and the Democrats are looking for ways to incentivize folks to build an accessory dwelling unit or a mother-in-law apartment, either build a new one in their backyard and rent it out, or to uh, rent out 
the basement or the or the attic of their homes to try to to fit more people into single family zoned neighborhoods. So that's a main focus of some of these bills. So also on my list is House Bill 1149 and its companion bill, Senate 5202. These bills uh, were proposed by Governor Inslee to lift the state's debt cap so it can issue up to $4 billion in bonds for the construction of affordable housing. It would uh, set up a workforce housing accelerator program with a revolving loan fund through the Washington State Housing Finance Commission, which would issue loans and grants for housing that would serve people making between 50% and 80% of area median income. In other words, that's the quote-unquote missing middle housing or workforce housing, it's sometimes called. Now, if the legislature approves one of these two bills, then that bill would go to the voters in November for final approval. So the state legislature couldn't just just on a majority vote lift the state's debt cap to spend that much money on on affordable housing or in this case, the missing middle housing. They can, however, approve the language for an initiative that would go to voters and voters would have to approve it. So that's House Bill 1149, and its companion bill in the Senate is 5202. And that's a high priority of the Democrats because the governors and the attorney general are behind it. Now, also on my list is House Bill 1110 and its companion bill in the Senate, 5190. That's another bill that would address the missing middle. Uh, it would change single-family zoning laws throughout the state of Washington to allow the construction of up to four units of housing typically duplexes, triplexes, and quadplexes on any lot in cities with 6,000 or more residents. Uh, If at least two of those units are affordable for folks making up to 80% of area median income, then the developer or landlord can build up to six units on the lot. And if the lot's within a half mile of a transit station, then it would automatically be able, they would automatically be able to build six units regardless of whether they're providing affordable housing. That's simply a density, pro-density bill with the idea that, uh, by increasing density and allowing more, uh, more units to be built on single lots, that then that the market would automatically would automatically provide affordable housing. So that one's a little bit more controversial, particularly Mm -hmm. controversial because there's a lot of localities, a lot of smaller towns and uh, uh, municipalities that don't want to change. They don't want the state to impose on them zoning regulations. They would rather pass their own regulations locally. So that's House Bill 1110 and Senate Bill 5190. Expect those to to get a lot of hearings and to have a lot of folks speaking out against them, although pro-density folks will also be supporting those quite a bit. Also on my list is House Bill 1111. That would allow cities to establish a housing benefit district to acquire and manage affordable housing. 33% of the housing must be for people who make less than 50% of area median income, 33% for middle income housing, and no more than 33% for market rate housing. So essentially, they're saying, all right, we've got these other bills that address the missing middle. We also need bills to address those making under 50% of area median income. Sure, the state's going to put money towards towards the state has put money towards that 
and many localities are doing uh, things to build to build uh, housing for folks who are on the very low end. But uh, we need to encourage the private market to do more of that as well. So that's House Bill 1111. House Bill 1245 would allow single family lots to be split into two. That would allow folks to build accessory dwelling units to, to split a large lot into two and build an accessory dwelling unit on one half of the lot and then be able to sell that unit to a, to a family as affordable housing or to uh, nonprofit affordable housing providers. That would require Washington cities to plan for this change under the Growth Management Act and then pass local ordinances to regulate that that new law. So new lots would need to be at least 1,500 square feet and at least 40% of the size of the original lot. So you can just split off a little tiny strip um, and, you know, put up a little shack. Any affordable housing already on the original lot could not be torn down to facilitate the split. So that uh, would address that argument that some folks make, particularly in single family neighborhoods where they say, oh, no, we can't allow increased density because we already have older homes that are more affordable. Typically, that's not true, but that's what people think who live in those neighborhoods. And so they make that argument. This would address that argument. If well, if that if that housing is truly affordable, then we're going to write it into the law that it can't be torn down to do further development. That's House Bill 1245. There is uh, also on my list House Bill 1250. That would expand the affordable housing units that would qualify for grants under the Low Income Housing Rehabilitation Program. Formerly. Uh, the qualifications for uh, folks to get to get loans under the low income housing rehabilitation program were based on the federal poverty level, which is actually too low for most residents of Washington state. OK, so if, for example, a housing developer was providing units to folks who made under the federal poverty level, then their housing that. Uh, served folks who make under 50% of area median income might not qualify because here in Washington state housing costs are so much higher than they, than they are if you, if you just look at the federal poverty level, right? This bill would change the requirements to look at units that serve folks who make up to 80% of area median income for the county in which they live in Washington state. Okay. So it takes it from the federal poverty level down to looking at a county by county basis and saying, okay, well, in King County, it's going to be different from it is, say, in Kitsap County or in Douglas County in eastern Washington. We're going to look at the AMI in the county or 60% of the state's area median income, whichever is higher. So that's nice because if, say, you're in King County, or if, say, you're in Douglas County and your county area median income is pretty low, you can still use the you can still use the state's area median income and qualify properties that maybe serve people who are just just a tad below area median income in your county. And it can still be considered a property that qualifies for a loan or grant through the low income housing rehabilitation program. And this is really important because there's just no money out there for these nonprofit housing 
providers to keep their buildings in good, in great shape. They often have to take out loans. It can be really, really difficult for them to repay those loans. They end up having to raise rents to do that, and that makes their housing less affordable. So the idea is that the state, through the low-income housing rehabilitation program, can step in and can help those uh, affordable housing providers to make improvements to their properties through loans or, in the best case, through grants, money that they don't have to repay as long as it's going to keep that that property affordable. And also, this bill would, instead of just uh, allowing the program to serve affordable housing in rural areas, uh, buildings located in cities would also qualify. Uh, in addition, the revolving loan program would eventually be retired and the program would then focus only on issuing grants that don't have to be repaid. And I think there's a retirement schedule. So when they reach the end of that, of that schedule and any outstanding loans that are still on the books would, I think would be forgiven. So that's the wording of the bill. That's House Bill 1250. And I think really, really important for folks who have considered for, you know, developers who have considered or particularly nonprofit affordable housing developers who have looked at a property that they want to convert to affordable, they want to purchase and convert to affordable housing. They've tried to pencil it out and make it work to to upgrade the building or to take a building that they've had for a while and make improvements to it to keep it going. I think a lot of nonprofit developers often have to say, look, there's no way we can make this work. And then they've had to shut down affordable housing or they've had to take a pass on on purchasing existing buildings and, and converting them. So this is something that's meant to kind of step in and help them out with that. I think a great that's a great bill. That's House Bill 1250. Also on my list is Senate Bill 5118, which would create a new 99-year property tax exemption for properties that rent or sell 35% of their square footage to low and moderate income households in cities with at least 20,000 residents. This would apply to both new construction and buildings converted to from another from another use to housing units. And this bill again would help solve a huge problem that a lot of commercial buildings in Seattle currently have. There are many many office buildings have very high vacancy rates or are entirely empty because workers are just not coming back to work after working from home during the COVID lockdown. And their employers are having a tough time getting workers back into the office. The employers are making the calculation of, dang, we're spending so much money renting office space. Let's close the office, you know, or let's move to a smaller space. And so there are a lot of commercial commercial office space. There's a lot of commercial office space just sitting vacant right now and would be, uh, I think, much, much better as converted into into affordable housing. So the state legislature has gone, you know, how do we help these landlords and these developers to make to make it pencil out to take an empty office building that's currently not generating any income at all and that uh, would require enormous internal improvements, quite a few internal renovation to turn it into into housing, particularly affordable housing? How do we provide how do we make that work for them? financially. 
So, you know, create a new property tax exemption was the answer. Now, other the the state already has some property tax exemptions on the books. There's an I think an 8-year, 10-year and 12-year property tax exemption. Uh there may be a 20-year property tax exemption. I I can't remember uh completely how many there are for converting affordable housing, but the requirements for those is to rent or sell units to to have like 20% of the units that you rent or sell be affordable. So the idea was how do we get a higher percentage of units for affordable housing? So let's up the number of years to make it pencil out even better to 99 years. And then let's up the percentage from 20% to 35%. And uh, make sure that, you know, we're creating not just market rate housing, but also a significant proportion of that be housing for for folks who who make less than 80 percent of AMI. So that is Senate Bill 5118. You may disagree with the idea of a 99 year property tax exemption. I'm assuming there may be some folks who think that's way too much and that 35% is not enough, but uh, it's a lot more than other property tax exemptions require. They're based on the 20% uh, affordable housing rate. So keep an eye on that bill. That bill's going to get hearings and be discussed quite a bit. And finally on my list is House Bill 1042 that would prevent cities and local governments from imposing restrictions on the construction of new housing units within already existing buildings in areas that are zoned for multifamily housing. Uh, that includes things like requiring a certain number of parking spaces per resident, requiring a minimum square footage for each unit to prevent single renters from living in the neighborhood. These kinds of strategies that we've seen uh, used here in the city of Seattle to prevent uh, denser housing, even in neighborhoods and in areas within neighborhoods that are already zoned for multifamily housing. Right. Uh, another thing that it would that it would uh, prevent cities from doing is the exterior design requirements that some that some neighborhoods go that some projects go through here in Seattle where a neighborhood group can sit there and say, uh, no, you got to change the design of this building. And these are for already existing buildings. You got to change the outside design of the building. You have to add a setback or you have to change, you know, your plans for the sidewalk or the entryway or whatever to make it match the character of the neighborhood. Well, if the building needs to be for affordable housing, these extremely expensive design changes can not only slow down uh, uh, a renovation of a building into affordable housing, it can also make it not pencil out and just put a halt to the project. And that is really how a lot of neighborhood groups have been using the design review process to to essentially put a halt to development in their neighborhood. And this bill, House Bill 1042, is trying to address that and trying to say, look, uh, that's ridiculous. Let's see if we can prevent cities and local governments and uh, neighborhood groups in particular from forcing these expensive improvements to existing buildings that aren't health and safety related and uh, trying to prevent more housing in their neighborhood. 
that that rounds up some just some of the bills that have been introduced in the House and Senate and referred to a committee uh, that are related to housing. And it's just the first week of the session. So we can expect to see a lot more of these. Uh, I think these are some of the most interesting ones. And again, if you're interested in looking at what bills are in the Washington state legislature, uh, I'm just going to give you the URL where the okay. state legislature, it has a not, not very graphical. It's kind of an old style website, but it serves its purpose and it, makes it pretty easy to just kind of browse through what bills are in which committees and which committees are doing work. It's uh, leg.wa.gov. <laughs> Going to sing that again, leg.wa.gov, because Job's not here to complain about me singing. So, <laughs> Yeah. All right. So. Okay. Janet Yellen, Secretary of the Treasury. Yes, moving, in this to, week. moving to to national news this oh. week. The Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, met with Congress, and she told Congress this week that the federal government could hit the debt ceiling as soon as this coming Thursday of this coming week. She committed the Treasury to taking what are called extraordinary measures to avoid that, but uh, warned that Congress needs to act ASAP to avoid crashing the economy. Now, those extraordinary measures that she was talking about mostly means things like prioritizing what payments the federal government makes. So, for example, they might prioritize, I, I would hope they would prioritize, making Social Security payments to, to elderly folks and things like paying interest on government bonds but maybe not paying contractors or not uh, paying the bill for office supplies or or for uh, or for utilities or whatever. But, you know, the federal government can only do that so long before it begins to default on its obligations. And when that happens, that can create a panic in in the economy. Now, the last time the federal government got this close to hitting the debt ceiling was in 2011. That was back when another brand new Republican majority in the House decided they were going to play chicken with President Obama and the Democrats and uh, see what happens if you didn't raise the debt ceiling. That led to a historic first uh, downgrade in U.S. government debt quality by the ratings agencies, which uh, led to some pretty wild market swings. Today, that kind of risky showdown could actually be much, much worse on the economy than it was back then. It could seriously spike interest rates on everything from home mortgages to auto loans to credit card debt. It could make inflation jump as a result and cause uh, our fragile economy where inflation is starting to just uh, tick, start to tick downward. It could crash what is a fragile recovery from the COVID pandemic downturn, okay? There are a ton of businesses right now that are just on the edge, really, and they're trying to emerge from the COVID pandemic and not go under. This could shove them under, okay? For example, a lot of retail stores, if you look at the news about re about retail stores that are having to close their brick-and-mortar stores, there are a ton of hotels, airlines, many, many restaurants, particularly smaller local restaurants that are that are struggling and trying to trying to get profitable again. 
there are even some very large tech companies that are that are struggling, like, for example, Facebook, Microsoft and Google. We got the news this week that that Microsoft and Facebook are downsizing their office space. Of course, here in Seattle, a lot of uh, workers are not going back into the office, but a profitable company like Microsoft has been in the past might keep that that office space open for hiring new workers to come in and requiring them to come in to the office. They're not doing that. They're closing it down. And I think the loss of ad revenue in particular is uh, negatively affecting a lot of online companies, while a loss of uh business of other businesses upgrading their software and their and their and their uh, computer hardware on a set schedule deciding instead to work with what they've got for another year or two is affecting companies like Microsoft other and other uh, computer hardware and software companies that rely on businesses routinely upgrading their equipment and their software on a regular basis so even those companies you tend to think of as recession proof are struggling right now. So the Republicans in the House, they need to move quickly on raising the debt ceiling. But I think the chaos that we've seen from the House Republicans, particularly from the far right weirdo faction, is probably going to derail a quick solution. My hope is that the mainstream Republicans will see this disaster coming and will reach across the aisle to the Democrats to work out a compromise that cuts the weirdos out of the out of the discussion and just kind of leaves them hanging. Now, I don't think that uh, that Kevin McCarthy is going to want to do that. I think he's going to try to keep the Republicans together. I think that's a mistake, though. So we'll just we'll see. It could be a wild ride. Hold on to your hat. So uh, also in the news this week, let's see if we can uh, cover really quickly George Santo, the George Santos mystery, which is okay. starting to unravel. Go for Santos it. is the New York uh, Republican who won a seat in the House in a district that was formerly Democratic in on Long Island in New York. He marshaled a long string of lies in order to get that seat. And now his entirely made up resume is starting to get filled in with actual details. It turns out that much of his educational experience, including his false claim that he attended Baruch University and played on his volleyball team, were borrowed from his former boss's resume. Santos has not worked for Citigroup or Goldman Sachs, as he claimed, but instead he worked for a company called Linkbridge Investors. Now, despite their name, they appear to be a glorified party planning company that holds get-togethers for people in the financial industry. And apparently, they don't even hold very many of them. Uh, they would hold three one-day parties per year, which hardly makes a business worthwhile, right? The testimonials listed on their website interestingly lacked the actual names of any people and many of the companies listed on those testimonials are so obscure that they don't have websites and may not even be real okay and then there's the big mystery that could involve criminal activity where did his campaign contributions really come from santos claimed that he had personally loaned over seven hundred thousand dollars to his campaign but no one could figure out how he got his hands on that kind of money it turns out that the DeVolder organization LLC, which he claims is the source of his millions, may have raised money for his campaign without filing as a political action committee as required by federal law. And I should point out that DeVolder is George Santos's middle name. 
In addition, another company that Santos worked for in 2020 and 2021, City Capital Corp, was being investigated by the Securities and Exchange Commission for being a quote-unquote classic Ponzi scheme. While he worked for that company, Santos used an alias, George DeVolder, and he promoted a fraudulent financial product on his Twitter account, according to the SEC, and to, I believe it was CNN, that uh, got a copy of the Twitter message and posted it for the whole world to see after uh, Santos himself had removed it from his Twitter account. And then there's the question, where does George Santos live? Congressional representatives are required to live in their districts. The New York Times has reported, and report, I believe it was uh, late December or early this week, that George Santos moved into a new house in August 2022, but it happens to be outside of his congressional district. And uh, uh, multiple groups have filed complaints against Santos with the Federal Elections Commission, but he is also uh, now being pursued by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York, uh, who have launched an investigation into him. And in Congress, complaints have been filed with the Office of Congressional Est- Ethics and the House Ethics Committee, although I don't think the Republicans in the House are going to do any kind of investigation into him, though they should instead of launching the bogus investigations that they're focusing on. So. I just wanted to uh, give the give the news about about uh, one of the brand new freshman Republicans and what he is actually uh, who he actually is and what he's actually been doing uh, rather than the false uh, background that he's concocted for himself. OK, so that wraps up our up time there. for the week. All right. Well, we'll have to uh, do this again. Maybe next week? Next week. (laughs) All right.